Why did Christ come? A lot of reasons. I've shared with you during this series over the last several weeks, uh, three of those. We'll look at those by way of review in just a moment. Uh, But today, let me start out with a quote by D.A. Carson. You see it there in your worship guide. I I love this quote. I've, I've used it a lot because it speaks to our greatest need. And there is a room filled with, and a city filled with, and a world filled with all kinds of different expressions of of needs. Uh, And I think Carson nails it biblically. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, He would have sent an economist. If He had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, He would have sent a comedian or an artist or maybe a TikTok influencer. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, oh my, do we need political stability, He would have sent us a politician. If He had perceived that our greatest need was health, then He would have sent us a doctor. But He perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from Him, our profound rebellion, our death. And He sent us a Savior. And over the last three weeks, I'll combine onto one slide the three primary reasons that I have been pointing to, pointing us to, so that we will come away with a greater understanding, a, a resonance, a response to why Jesus came. He came to save sinners. And we heard a profession of that in both of the baptisms. Last week, I asked the question, are all of us sinners? The answer is yes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and since we are all sinners, we all need a Savior. Secondly, He came. This was the first sermon in the series. He came to bear witness to the truth. In other words, Jesus said He came to bear witness that, does anybody remember John 14, 6? When Jesus said, I am. Myself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And this last one, and it's, it's a now and not yet reality of why Jesus came. He came so that He could destroy the work of the devil who had the power over death. Someday we will be a part of the bruising of the head of the enemy. And so, 700 years before the birth of Christ, we find this marvelous prophecy in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. You see, I've just given you the Scripture on your outline. We're going to walk through this, celebrate, because this tells us the gospel that we've already heard. We will continue to hear and we'll end up with a picture of the gospel in the Lord's Supper. I'm just going to focus on the few words there, and I'm probably not even going to get to verse 7, but primarily focus on verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, I've said this, and I don't want to rain on anybody's parade 
who really loves the Hallmark card kind of Christmas. I'm all over that too. I love the sentiments. I love the pictures. I love the thoughts that are primarily, let me just remind you, that are primarily cultural. But we've tried to dispel any thought that that's all that Christmas is, a card with a cute little cuddly baby that's born on a starry, silent night. We went a couple of Sundays ago all the way back to the book of Genesis, and even there the prophecy was given. When God spoke to the serpent, and he said, from this point on there is going to be war. There is going to be enmity. There is going to be hostility between your seed and the seed of the woman. And we discovered we're not going to go back and review all of that. The seed of the woman, Christ, but the seed of the woman through Christ would be those who follow Jesus Christ. And then the wonderful prophecy, indeed, Satan was able to bruise Christ. There's a lot there that literally was fulfilled on the cross. But ultimately, we know that Jesus bruised him on the head. He dealt the death blow to him. And we jumped last week. Some of you were saying, oh my, how are we going to do this out of Christmas, out of Revelation chapter 12? And as we walked through that, we saw that, that, that Christmas, listen, Christmas is a part of the cosmic war that has existed since the fall of man and will exist until Christ comes back. This was another picture. By the way, I lobbied hard for the red dragon in our nativity. Jan said we could keep it. So when our kids from Little Rock came and they came in and I said, hey, go over there and look at the nativity scene. Do you notice anything different? There's a dragon. And so I was able to tell them about Jesus being born into the very kind of conflict that you and I face every day. Here's what I'd like you to carry away from this. Jesus in a cradle is one thing. And fortunately, in, in a lot of churches, at least they get that far. I'm afraid that sometimes they don't even get that far. But in a lot of churches, they do. So Christ in a cradle is one thing, but Jesus on the throne is another thing altogether. Now let me ask you something that needs to be said in just a few minutes after we go into this wonderful statement that I, I, I don't know how much we look at that. Look at the next statement. The government shall be upon his shoulder. I, I did a little bit of a search. I'm not sure why it's singular here. Maybe just to show that the, that the weight of the world, everything, the weight of the cosmos can be borne on one shoulder of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at different passages of Scripture. I love the passage in Daniel. I use this a lot too that shows God's sovereignty. It really does say that, that God is large and in charge, and He can bear the, the weight. He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? 
And, and you know, I, I, I'm particularly, I, I, I love this because it does show Jesus on the throne. The quote that I just gave to you a minute ago. And we look forward to what's going to happen someday when the Lord Jesus comes back. And so as we worship today and as we celebrate Christmas, and some of you have opened your gifts already, some will do it a little bit later on, but remember that when Jesus came into this cosmic conflict, He's coming again to settle everything. Everything's going to be settled because He is. On His robe and on His thigh are written the names, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus really is in control. Now, here's the question. Do you believe that? I hear one amen. Do you believe that Jesus is really in control? We believe it theologically. Now, here's my challenge to all of us, me included. We believe it theologically. We come to church and we hear a sermon and we hear these quotes out of Daniel and Revelation. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. But do you really believe, if you believe that Jesus, if His shoulders are big enough to carry the burdens of the world, then here's the question. Why are you, why am I, why are we so often filled with fear and anxiety and stress. I'm making an application to each one of us today because this is not just a sweet little time when we gather together and hear a, a Vespers sermon or a little sermonette. Sermonettes are for Christianettes. This goes, this goes deep. This goes deep. This speaks to us where we are. If you really believe theologically that, that Jesus, the government, the, the, the the leadership of everything rests on His shoulders, then can you believe that what you're going through, the burdens that you bear right now, can also be rested on His shoulders? It really makes a difference if you believe it and if you're living it out. Run across, to, uh, across a story, true story, happened a while back, a man by the name of George McCaslin, and he was the leader of a business, and the business was going under. And everything he did, nothing worked. And he was working 85 hours a week, and still the business was going under, and he was stressing. Does this sound familiar? It could be about a business. It could be about a family. It could be about a relationship, a marriage, a child, a parent. I, it could be about any of those things. But he, he went to see a therapist. And the therapist said, George, if you, if you don't do something, you're going to get sick over this. So on the advice of a friend, he took a notebook and he went out into the woods by his house. And he walked through the woods and he sat down under a tree. And he took his notebook with his pen in hand and he wrote these words. Dear God, today I hereby resign as general manager of the universe. Love, George. And he said in his story, wonder of wonders, 
God accepted my resignation. (laughs) I, I don't know. I think there are some in this room to one degree or another who really need to take your notebook, at least mentally or in your heart, and go sit under a tree and write those very words about the things that are weighing you down. To cast your burdens upon him. Because the government is really upon his shoulder. The dominion, the rule. And if he can carry the weight of the universe, he can carry your burdens. Let's look at the four names that are given in this prophecy. And his name shall be called or Khaled, if you're listening to the song. Not two names. This is a a description of who he is. He's not just a counselor. He is a wonderful counselor. Now, you might separate it out because certainly Jesus is wonderful, but that's not his name. His name is Wonderful Counselor. Think about it for a minute, please. He's not just smart, okay? Jesus is the greatest mind in the universe. He knows the answer to every question. People throughout my ministry have assumed that I know more than I really do. When they ask me deep theological questions, and sometimes I just have to say, you know, I just don't know for sure. But listen, again, it's kind of like the government resting on his shoulders. Jesus is never unsure. Jesus never has to think about it. And let this sink in. Jesus is never wrong. He will tell you the truth because he is the truth. Do you need guidance today? Is there any decision that you need help with? The bottom line, do you think that Jesus can guide you in the right direction? In fact, here's the question, really. Why would you turn to anyone else? You may have many counselors, but only one. I'm speaking to Christians. You may have many counselors, but only one of them is wonderful. And his name is Jesus. You might get a world of advice. But this wonderful counselor, Jesus, gives you himself. You know how I know that? Because of the prophecy given earlier in the book of Isaiah that also is tacked on to Matthew chapter 1. The Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. Added to that, Matthew adds these words which means God with us. He gives us himself. He's not only the wonderful counselor, he's also mighty God. Now, this goes back to the government on his shoulder, but it is a title, it is a name that shows the wonder of this Jesus, born as a baby. He is sovereign, 
He is all-powerful. We could just stack words on top of that. He will not only help you in life's decisions as a wonderful counselor, He will also, as mighty God, help you with all of life's demands. Okay, a quiz. Oh, let me get this first. Hebrews chapter 2, verses verses 17 and 18. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This goes back to the wonderful counselor. I just skipped over it. So that, look at the last line. This is what it, really what I wanted you to end up with. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to come to your aid when you're tempted. Now, back to that. Quiz. Kids, you probably know this. So nobody yell it out until we come to the end. All right? Here we go. What is greater than God, more evil than the devil... Poor people have it, rich people don't want it, and if you eat it, you will surely die. Does anybody know the answer to that riddle? What's the answer, kids? Nothing. You're exactly right. How does that fit in? Nothing is greater than God. That's really the point. Nothing is more evil than the devil. Maybe sin. Poor people don't have it. They have nothing. They have it, rather. Rich people don't want it. They don't want nothing, double negative. And if you eat nothing, you will surely die. The stunning reality of Christmas is that the... Listen, I, how do you explain this? The power of mighty God, the power of the universe was compacted and compressed into a baby. And so here's what that means for you and for me. No power on earth, no power in the cosmos, no sinful habit, no painful past, no present struggle can stop God from fulfilling His purpose in your life. And you can take that to the bank. I chose a, a scripture to reveal this, and it's another statement of God's sovereignty, His power, His ability to perform. But I chose a statement that Job made, which I felt like had a lot of significance because Job was going through it. And if anyone could have said that he questioned the power of God, it would have been Job. But listen to his words He, God, is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. And then Job said these words in the midst of his pain. I love this. And this is a message for every one of us today. He will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. You jump to the New Testament. What's the New Testament version of that? The Apostle Paul, one of my favorite verses. I've shared with you over and over again. When I first started following Christ as a young man, I was so fearful that I would not make it as a Christian. And somebody shared with me this encouragement, this promise right away. 
and it's stuck with me ever since. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, will perfect it, bring it to maturity until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day that Jesus comes again. He always finishes what he starts. And when you are weak, when in fact, when you're at your weakest, he's at his strongest. And that's what Paul said again in 2 Corinthians. God told him in a moment of weakness when Paul was feeling weak, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I'll boast about my weaknesses so that the power of God might come through. When you are weak, He is strong. So this baby is wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. The third thing is He is everlasting Father. Now, a little bit of theology here. Jesus is not the Father. There's a trinity. God One God in three persons. He is the Son. I said it a minute ago. Fully God and yet fully man. He had to be in order to carry the sins of the world. But, but He is the exact representation of the Father and that is good news for you and for me. You know... There is one sense. Here, here are two words. I learned these in seminary, but they're, they're really, they're, they're just good, rich words that we need to know. There is a sense of God that is truly transcendent. He's just big. He's powerful. He's almighty. And in some ways, although he makes himself his general attributes known to us, in some ways, This great God is unknowable. So how are we going to get Him? How are we going to understand Him? Because God came close. He's not only transcendent, but in Jesus Christ, born in a manger, He is also imminent. He came close. He brought all of the qualities of the Father near to us. What are some of the things a father does? A father gives life. A father gives life. A father provides perfectly, perfectly everything that we need. My God will supply all of your needs according to His glory, His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. A father cares for, he loves his children. I love Psalm 103, 13. A father show, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And this, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. And this is particularly meaningful and, could I say it, useful? That He is everlasting, He's eternal Father, because if you ever feel weak, He perfectly provides, He perfectly cares. If you ever feel alone, if you ever feel 
unappreciative, then he comes alongside. You know, this is a lot like, and all of these have similarities. And in some ways, this is a lot like being the wonderful counselor, but I wrote down this thought. You can sit and talk to a counselor, but you can crawl up into the lap of a daddy. And that leads to his last name, Prince of Peace. You ought to love that name. He is the Prince of all peace, the God of all peace. Now, realize this, and this this is a lead-in into the Lord's Supper. All of us want peace. The world wants peace. And so we focus on that kind of peace that God through Jesus, promises us. I've said these things to you, he said to his disciples, that in me you may have peace, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But before we can, and many of you know this, and some of you don't, and you need to get it, before you can have the peace of God, you must have peace with God. And that happens only through the justification that God gives us when we repent and we believe. Whether we're eight years old like Micah or we're 80 years old, it's the same thing. We repent and we believe and we are justified by faith from our sins goes back to something we've been talking about all along. We've been talking about conflict and war. What, what, by the way, what is the opposite of peace? The opposite of peace is war. And a lot of times people don't realize that the greatest war that they're in, I'm talking about those outside of saving faith, the greatest war they're in right now is their war against God. There is a hostility that must be settled when you believe in Jesus Christ and you receive the peace of God. So think of it like this. You're not just looking for peace, you're looking for Jesus because the Bible is very clear that He Himself is our peace. Shouldn't we want to celebrate that? Shouldn't we want to celebrate the gospel? And that's what we're doing today. From the very beginning to the very end, we have been celebrating why Jesus came into the world. It is a gospel answer that we saw in the beautiful picture, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ symbolized by water baptism. It's also symbolized by what we call the Lord's Supper. Some people call it communion. High church calls it Eucharist, but essentially it is a picture of this fact that nothing will give you peace except death. Let that soak in. Did you you hear what I said? Nothing will give you peace except death. And I'm not talking about what we often hear when somebody dies and they say, well, at least he's at peace. Not always. Ask the rich man in Luke 16. He was not in peace because he died without being savingly joined to Christ. 
But wait a minute, I just said nothing will give you peace but death. You know what I'm talking about, the death of Christ. The reason Jesus came to earth as the God-man was to die. He was born, he was placed in the cradle, and someday he would die on the cross. That's why Jesus came. quoted this for you at the very beginning. We looked at this verse, and I want you to see that in this verse, you might not have seen it, is a perfect picture of both the cradle and the cross in the second sentence. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, the pre-incarnate Jesus, God, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. That's a picture of the cradle. That through death, that's a picture of the cross, He might destroy the one who has the power of death. When I began this service, I pointed back to what it says earlier in chapter 9 of Isaiah. It says, the people were in darkness until the light came, prophecy of Jesus coming. I pray that on this Christmas day, 2022, that you will not walk out those doors if you're walking in darkness right now and continue to walk in darkness. I pray that the light of life in Jesus Christ will burst upon you, upon your heart, that you will, again, young or old, repent of your sins. What sin? Playing God and fighting God. You'll repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and His death on Calvary's cross so that His righteousness can be imputed to you and that you can know the light of Jesus Christ that is shown on the world. I want you to take your element And if you do not have, if you came in, we've got men who have the cups. Would you raise your hand so that you can be sure? Now, here's how we do this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you know that, then we invite you today to, because you're a part of the universal body of Christ, so are those who are assembled here as believers, followers in Christ Still have a couple of hands right down here. And so we invite you to take of the Lord's Supper with us because this does not ensure salvation. This is a sign of what has already happened in your heart. And so we take of two elements. We take of the bread, which symbolizes the broken body of Christ on the cross. And then afterwards we'll take of the cup, The grape juice which symbolizes the spilled blood of Christ poured out for many for the remission of sins. So let me encourage you to hold that with the wafer up first and remove that foil cover. I'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 26, we'll read 
We'll pray and then we'll partake of the element. Father, I thank you that you, in your wisdom, in the love with which you loved the world, that you became a man. I thank you that we can celebrate, we can look back and see how that this was from the foundation of the world and that you had a plan and a purpose to save your people. So, Father, what a great thing it is that we can assemble on this day that we celebrate the birth of our Savior and we can look forward to what happened 33 years later, the death at Calvary's cross, and then look forward to the final culmination in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us. These are symbols. But as we take them into our bodies physically, I pray that there would be a great reminder of what it cost for you to buy us back, to redeem us from our sin and our alienation and our rebellion. Thank you that you hung on the cross. Thank you that your body was broken for us. And thank you that we can remember that and celebrate that until you return. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.